Stay hungry, stay foolish. Many of us feel uneasy with the lack of recognition that our community, city, region or country receives internationally. This has probably been the case for as long as man exists. But in today's world, with its global connections and social media, it is becoming more apparent, more relevant and more frustrating to citizens generally, but in particularly to policymakers, public administrators, leaders and representatives in public, private and civil society sectors. Why this is so and what to do about it is the focus of today's show. We will discuss the topic of community reputation. For communities to be admired, they need a sense of belonging and purpose in order to do amazing, imaginative things befitting their character while captivating others. We welcome international advisor, scholar, speaker and author of Imaginative Communities, Admired Cities, Regions and Countries, Dr. Robert Govers. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Aidan. It's great to be with this crowd and thanks for the invitation. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show. It's a really interesting book and a concept that many of us wouldn't have thought of, which is how do we attract people to our countries, our cities, our regions to incite economic spend in those areas, but also to bring tourists in, to bring industry in, to attract foreign direct investment, et cetera, et cetera. And you've nailed that in this book. What I've tried to do is, is write a book that makes this issue of how cities, regions, and countries create uh, name awareness for themselves internationally and how they are perceived to talk about this discipline and um, show the reader, uh, the with my experience of over 20 years working in this field, of how how this these processes work um, and why some places are admired more than others and what, what can be done about it. Your background is in marketing as well as this field, and you've combined them beautifully to come up with this way of marketing regions and cities and countries in a world where people trust advertising and marketing less and less. You talk about the proper way marketing should be done in that we create a pull effect where you attract people in. You're not pushing messages down their throats. Yes, absolutely, and 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 it's funny you say that because um, I, I think it's even more, much more than marketing, um, as you know very well, of course, that you know marketing one hundred and one says we need to understand who our customer is, and then create the offering, um, you know, the right product or the right service at the right place at the right time at the right price for that um, clientele. Um, but I think when we're looking at reputation of communities, there's much more to it. When we look at marketing for places, we're really dealing with tourism marketing or investment promotion or export marketing. Those are very long-established disciplines, and rightfully so. Uh, they're very important. But they all start from the premise that the city or the country or the region that we're trying to export from or where we're trying to attract foreign direct investment to or where we're trying to attract tourists to, that those places are known and have a positive image. We know from lots and lots of research that if you have a positive reputation, if people have heard of you and they have some positive mental association with your location, then it's much easier to attract them as tourists or investors or to sell export products to them. This is an overarching challenge 
which actually has much less to do with marketing than selling an actual product to a target market, because it's really about planting a seed in people's mind very often at an early age and combating also, therefore, stereotypes and cliches that people might have had ingrained into their minds at an early age. The way you do that, marketing in all these various disciplines, tourism and exports, etc., can help. But it's really much more about thinking who we are as a community. What's our history? Where did we come from? What is our sense of purpose? Where do we want to go? How do we want to position ourselves in the world? What do we want to become famous for? And then finding imaginative ways, doing new things, striking things, engaging things, projects, investments, infrastructure, what have you, show to the world that this is who we are. Do it in a way that people say, hmm, hold on, well, that's interesting, that's quite unique. I think that one is really interesting where you say it's about planting the seed. And there's a Napoleon Hill quote, which is think twice before you speak, because your words and influence will plant the seed of either success or failure in the mind of another. And the reason I wrote down that quote was when I was reading the book, I thought how you talk about a community or region or country can affect the people who live there as well. It's not just about attracting tourists, etc. It's how you affect their confidence. And I really took that. And that's why in the introduction to today's show, I talked about people feeling lost because without a sense of purpose or belonging, people can feel like they're at sea. And by having a region that has a, a clear identity, they can rally behind that. You're right. Um, it's a virtuous circle, of course. So when you have a community that people feel proud of, residents, you know, they, they have this sense of comradeship and belonging and, and you know, they're, they're, they're proud to be part of a community that's going somewhere. Um, obviously they, they will then become more enthusiastic to contribute to it. Um, and the most important thing in, in, in this, uh, what I wrote about in my book, Imaginative Communities is that, um, this is really also about collaboration. You need to get public sector, private sector and civil society to collaborate and come up with imaginative events and ideas and projects. Um, to have a constant stream of initiatives that people outside will see, you know, this is, this is a community where something's happening. So you need this sense of engagement locally. Uh, and then of course, if that works and outsiders start noticing it and start to become enthusiastic about it and they sort of you know, change their cliches and their stereotypes about who you are. Um, that, of course, then itself, because people will visit and people will invest, um, will have a positive impact on, on, on the community and how the residents feel about it. So it's a, it's a virtuous circle, really. So it's, it's both about building community at the same time as building an external engagement around that community. We'll come back to collaboration because that's a key piece of, of everything. But what's happened? You talk about globalization has led to a lack of imagination. It reminds me very, very much of business and strategy that everybody is following best practices and very, very few people are following best principles and adding imagination. And, and this is the key to what you talk about in the book is adding that secret ingredient of imagination to create something really compelling to pull people in is the way forward. I think this is one of the downsides of globalization. Of course, it has brought many developments. The system that we are in dictates politicians and everybody has to be accountable for what they do. So we tend to now do copy-paste. Some things work somewhere else, so we'll do the same thing. And 
we're accountable for it. We look at we look only at the economic at the figures. You know, how much does it cost? How much does it generate? Does it bring us a profit? So all of that is very rational, rationalized, and made accountable. And so everything is brought down to a sense of measurability, accountability, measuring impact against smart objectives. And all of that makes a lot of common sense. But as Frank Underwood in House of Cards has said, the only problem with common sense is that, that it's so common, meaning it's so boring, you know? And that's what you've seen happening with globalization. And that's one of the downsides of it is that it, it leads to homogenization. I like to call it Disneyfication of places and McDonaldization of services. And obviously, if you want to get international recognition, if you want people to know about you and understand what you're about, you need to do something that is new. You need to stand out. You know, so by copy-pasting what everybody else has done, by focusing on functional characteristics of you know, logistical systems, education system, and creating infrastructures and, and, and transportation and all of that, but only from the perspective of functionality, is not enough in order to get international recognition. So you need to, you have to include this element of imagination of doing something that is outrageous or, or unique or, or, or you know, an alternative way of doing things uh, that people will say, hold on, you know, this is interesting. They're doing it in a slightly different way. We should pay attention to that. And that, of course, will then give you the recognition and, and you know, that will be the thing, the seed that you plant into people's minds where they where they know they've heard of this place before because there's something unique happening there. And I love the Frank Underwood quote that his imagination is its own form of courage because it really does take courage. It's like a leader of a business who decides, you know what, we're in a red ocean here. Our business has had its day and we need to reinvent the business. They don't kill the business as it is today immediately, but they start, as you say, plant a seed for what it will become in the future. And countries and policymakers in countries need to be thinking along those lines. It's great that you refer to that quote, which I love, you know, imagination is its own form of courage, because you're absolutely right. Of course, it, it takes a lot of guts, because by definition, imagination means that you look at what you have, but then, you know, imagine, come up with um, outrageous or you know, alternative ways of taking that forward. And therefore, by definition, it means taking risks because by definition, you're not going to do something that is copy-paste. You're not going to apply proven techniques or proven designs or what have you. you. By definition, you're going to do something completely new or you know, almost completely new. And obviously, that involves risk, um, risks of failure, but also risk of being criticized. So absolutely, you know, we, we need public leaders that are willing to take that risk, but also that are able that show leadership and are able to convince those communities to go along with him or her and to into this adventure. This is where, of course, you, you refer to what happens in business, but this is also where it's very much different because when we're talking about community, when you're in a business, you're the CEO, uh, you have control over your organization and you know you have the power to fire people or hire people and things like that. But of course, when you're talking about democratic community, you don't have that. So it's really about people's willingness to, to go along with you. And, and therefore, you know, this is a real big thing. It's, it's the courage, the imagination and the leadership. Let's look at a couple of examples, because you've recently been working on Kazakhstan. And I thought it was great you talk about the Stan effect. 
Kazakhstan is a very interesting country and they've done interesting things. I think uh, there's more that can be done. And, and yes, we work there and particularly uh, I was involved in, in, in analyzing where, you know, where they are in terms of their reputation and their name awareness. And this is one of their challenges. You know, people, they're not very well known. So many people around the world have not really heard about Kazakhstan or where, what it is. And if they have, they, uh, one of the things that there's two problems that they're dealing with. One is Borat. Um, so many people say, Oh, Kazakhstan, that's, you know, but that's the, the, what Borat talks about in his movie. Um, <laughs> which is, of course, very negative. Um, and, but some will argue, well, that's not necessarily a bad thing. At least they've heard of the country. Um, otherwise they might not have heard of it at all. Um, but the other, the other issue that you have is what, what we would call the Stan effect. So many people outside of Asia. Um, would say, oh, Kazakhstan, Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, you know, all those stands. And, and for them, that is, that is associated with, um, terrorism and instability and all of that, which is really unfair, obviously. Uh, but it's real, a real challenge that a place like, and, and this is true for many places, you know, where, where you have what we would call, you know, in the psychology of how people build uh, a mental picture of places, what we call inferences. So people infer that what applies to neighboring countries or the countries in the region or countries that have the same similar name, that that applies to everyone. It's like the stereotyping, of course, that's the definition of stereotyping. Um, so those are real challenges. But, um, you know, to, to, to talk about some of the cases that I write about in my book that I think uh, have really been able to Move the needle and you know, created some awareness for themselves. Uh, countries that might otherwise not be known at all or very little, people have no idea about this. The countries that I talk about are, for instance, Estonia. They, um, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they, they figured out how they, or they wanted to figure out how they would stand out from the other, other Baltic states and Coincidentally, um, Estonia has been for a long time a very high-tech uh, society. Um, this is where Skype was invented. And uh, since a couple of years, they said, okay, let, let's become the first real e-state. So all of their public services are online and in the cloud. Uh, they then were the first country to write into their constitution that Internet access is a human right. They created this e-residency program where people from outside the country can become an e-resident and therefore have online access to banking services, business registration services, etc. Which means that, you know, basically as a, as a non-European, you could start a legit European business without residing in Europe. Um, and the last thing that they've now done is these e-embassies. Uh, so this is an example of a country that has had some consistent Imagine a few cons uh, imaginative initiatives that consistently build um, this positioning that they're aiming for. Another example is Bhutan, you know, that people might have heard of this um, of gross national happiness. So this was the country where actually for long um, part of the culture is to prioritize well-being over material gain. And the king in the 1990s came up with idea, this idea of not just measuring economic prosperity, but also measuring well-being and they create this idea of gross national happiness and happiness institute and there's now an annual happiness conference and you know the world has started to adopt this idea of national happiness but it was really bhutan where this was event invented 
So these are just some examples of you know places that been have been able to to establish themselves in the in the mental landscape of of, of the world and what what how people understand the world. And it's really by doing imaginative things, so looking at who we are, where we are, what what have we got, what and what can we contribute to humanity and the planet, and then doing doing it in imaginative ways, doing ways that where people say, "Oh, this is interesting. Something's happening there." You talk about the long long game here because this is not a short term fix. We have to invest, and it's like building a brand. You don't do it quickly, and you don't do it through a huge advertising spend. You do it through reputation and consistency as well. And one of the the cases I loved that you shared is the story about Oslo's future library. And it brought to mind another quote, which is the true meaning of life is to plant trees under whose shade you do not expect to sit. If you're talking about imaginative initiative, um, this is truly an imaginative initiative because it's not there's nothing really there. Um, so the, the idea of the Os- Oslo future library is that um, they they have looked again at themselves and and looked at you know Oslo and its community and its people you know and and who are we and where do we want to go and they came to realize that Oslo is actually a very young city in terms of its population so it's got a very high um, number of young people so um, they came up with the idea that Oslo should really position itself as a place where the best is yet to come so a very future oriented young dynamic. Uh, city and to exemplify that and to you know to do something imaginative to and the reason of course why you do this imaginative stuff is really to set the, the media agenda and and to do things that people will share in social media that will give you therefore you know uh, international coverage um so that what they did in Oslo was really imaginative of, of planting a forest of trees um, that will grow for the next hundred years and then they commission a manuscript by a famous author, an international author, so they're not necessarily Norwegian authors. Uh, they contribute one manuscript a year for the next 100 years. And then in 100 years' time, they will cut the forest and they will print the books and um, and then have this um, as a collection in, in the new library that they've also built. Um, so this is really interesting because... You know, this is truly imaginative because you have to imagine as an author that you're writing for an audience that will live in 100 years from now. Um, so, you know, this is really, a, I think, a striking uh, example of, of things that you can do. Uh, it doesn't actually require huge amounts of investment or ecological impact, but still they receive quite a bit of media attention in global media and, and people talk about it. It's the story that sells the concept. And I was just actually thinking of, you know, if you had a bureaucratic institution and you're trying to sell that idea, it's so fair play to whoever whoever got that one over the line. But, yes. but, you, but you say as well, it, it doesn't have to be mass. So, so that seems like a very large initiative to undertake. And you talk about it can be smaller things as well and that it can be things that address existing cliches and stereotypes. And you mentioned Finland, and and we have we have an audience in Finland and Business FM. So hello to anybody listening in Finland. And in Finland, they developed their own set of emojis. I thought this was a great one and a simple one to do. Absolutely, I love the example of the uh, Finnish emoji. Um, 
and as you say, isn't that's not a, a huge undertaking, you know? It's but it's again, it's it's coming up with something creative, something unique, and and it's and it's been so successful that now many many other cities, regions, and countries have copied the idea of you know creating their own set of national emojis. But they came up with it first, and they they launched it around um, you know Christmas celebrations and Santa Claus, where they're already, of course, Finland, the home of Santa Claus. Where they already have international initiatives around this, but they came up with this idea of looking at okay, so what are some of those Finnish icons that people would recognize around the world, which are like reindeer, sauna, a headbanger. So these are typically um, you know Finnish inventions or um, things that people recognize as Finnish. And they they created all these little icons as a set of emojis that people can use on their mobile device keyboards. And initially, you uh, had to download an app in order to be able to use those. But they've actually filed some of the most iconic of those emojis. I think it's the headbanger and the sauna and the reindeer. <laughs> they filed those for um, uh, ASCII uh, recognition so that they become, uh, uh, you know, uh, o- um, official part of the international ASCII, uh, what is it, character set. Um, so they, that they should become um, a standard part of everybody's um, you know, keyboard uh, that you use on your mobile devices. We talked about building a brand and that it takes a long time to change what people think. And the big thing is actually changing existing mental models. So you pass on folklore about the country, for example, the Irish, the Irish pub life, green grass, etc, etc. It takes a long time if you want to actually change those perceptions. And you talk about the concept of schema and schemata is the underlying parts of this mental change and mental shifts. Yes, absolutely. So schema are the, you know, the, the like the mental links that you have between concepts. So when you call out a name of a place, as you rightfully say, I think there's a good example, Ireland, then people will think, you know, they will link that to Guinness. They will link that to green grass. They will link that maybe rain. Um, they will link that to YouTube and Bono. Uh, you know, what have you. Um, so, um, those are sort of deeply rooted, ingrained standard roots that we have in our brain that are very hard to erase. Um, and part of that is, as I mentioned before, is what, um, what happens is these inferences. So, um, I do this with students when I uh, uh, teach about my book in guest um, lectures. Um, you know, I ask them, um, uh, what, what do you think of uh, Saudi Arabia? And then they might say, you know, oil wealth, uh, oil dollars, sand, camels, what have you. Um, and then I ask them about another place that they probably have n- not heard of, might have heard of, but they have no idea about in another place in the Middle East. And they'll probably just Copy the same associations. That's that. Those are those inferences. I've seen this in my own research when I studied uh, the case of Dubai, and you could really see that some of those associations are very much cliché. There is just the standard associations that people have with all countries in that region. So they would actually comment on, you know, the position of women in Muslim society. That in Dubai, uh, women are not to dra- not allowed to drive cars. That you would have to go veiled. That you won't see many women in the street, which is complete nonsense, because those are things that, um, of course, apply to Saudi Arabia, but not to many of the other cities in the region, particularly not um, Dubai, which is quite cosmopolitan. But this is just because 
no, this happens with people that have very little idea of what this specific place is about. So they will just copy some of the ideas of the region onto it. Um, and, and these are things that are very hard to get rid of. And the challenge, of course, with places um, compared to businesses, because you talk about brand. Um, but again, brand is a very interesting concept. But the way we do quote unquote branding in the commercial world is almost impossible to copy onto places. There's lots of reasons, but I'll try to keep it simple. One of the reasons is that as an organization, you have almost complete control over the way in which you engage with your audience um, because you have control over the communications channels. And of course, you have control over the product design and how you make that available in the market. Um, so, you know, when organizations do commercial organizations do branding, um, you know, it deals with packaging and the logo and the naming and then the retail channels. Uh, you know, they look at what they would call their touch points and take control of that and make sure that it's consistent across the board. But of course, when you're talking about a city, region, or country, there's so many different ways in which places engage with the outside world. Just, you know, for one thing, um, just switch on the eight, you know, the primetime TV news. And what do the news reporters talk about? It's about places. You know, in country X, this happened. In city Y, that happened. Um, this rarely happens for a commercial organization unless something has gone completely wrong. Um, you know, very, very occasionally you might get some mainstream media attention. Um, unless it's in a specialized field, of course. Um, but places are constantly being talked about, are constantly being traveled to, are constantly stories being shared in social media. Um, so having, you, you don't really have control over those channels. And therefore, this is where, again, you know, the imaginative initiatives come in. You have to do actual things to show that you're serious about, you know, where you want to go with, with your community and how you want to stand out. And that's where you talk about action communication as opposed to words communication. Exactly, because action communication is, you know, this is, you, you, you don't tell a story, you create the story, you set the media agenda, you create something that is a real thing that shows this is who we are, this is what we stand for, and this is what we want to get recognized for. You talk about how we limit information processing and selective learning by applying five filters. Could we share those filters with our audience? Yeah, sure. This is, you know, this is the real challenge uh, when, when you know, communicating with an outside audience. Of course, you have the, the five filters are exposure. So first, people need to be exposed. This, is, of course, comes from the advertising discipline. So when you're trying to reach people, you need to make sure that the target is being exposed to your message. Um, then people need to have attention for it. So, you know, you could have a billboard on the street and they're exposed to the billboard. They might not actually be paying attention to it. Third thing is they need to understand it. And this is a tricky thing, particularly when we talk about places, because understanding is about the person judging whether what they have just been told fits with their preconceived ideas. So we tend to ignore or, um, refer to something as fake news, if you like, which is, of course, now happening more often, when it, it doesn't match their uh, existing ideas. I think that's maybe a good definition of fake news. It's just 
this doesn't resonate with what I thought. Right? This, this contradicts my existing beliefs, and therefore I judge it to be fake news, whether it's true or not. And then accepting it. So, you know, even when you say, okay, this maybe makes sense, but, you know, okay, I don't care. I'll forget about it. So they might not accept the uh, uh, proposition. And lastly, is filing it into memory. So there's lots of barriers that you have to cross in order to get into people's minds. And particularly this, you know, when you're talking about places and cliches and stereotypes, it's very hard to get rid of those. I don't believe, by the way, in advertising for communities, cities, regions, and countries anyway. But I particularly get frustrated when they send out completely contradicting messages to what they know people already understand about a place. So the idea is, of course, that you know people are wrong; they completely misunderstand who we are, and their ideas about who we are, are are outdated. And we're going to tell them that they're wrong, and they should change their mind about us because you know we are actually fabulous. <laughs> and this is what they will then advertise. And of course, people will just resist that um, because it's you know they know it's advertising, they know it's paid for, so they know it's you know propaganda. Um, um, so they're they're very reluctant to believe that anyway. Um, and basically, you're telling them you're an idiot because you've got completely the wrong idea about who we are. And, you know, people don't like to be told that. So those things really don't work. It's only by doing things, by creating events, by creating you know, architecture, um, infrastructure, policy, um, that show to people that you take this serious, that you've gone through the effort and have the imagination to come up with something new. That, pe- that people might might start changing their mind. This is one of the reasons I asked you on the show, Robert, because I really hope a board member may hear this and give a CEO slack who's saying we need time to change the perception of a brand or a country or city or region because it takes time. Absolutely. And it's not, it's not a short-term yeah. fix. And often the pressure comes on a C-suite executive from the CEO or on the CEO from the board and there's a, no understanding that the world has changed, that you need to be authentically authentic. You can't say you're authentic and then, as you say, your actions not match your words, because that's the worst thing that can happen. And then become defensive when either the public or your customer revolts against you and go, well, that's actually a load of crap because that's not the way you really are. That's when the brand totally goes off the tracks. That's absolutely right. You know, it's a very, very long-term process. So, you know, know, changing your reputation as a location takes 10, 20 years and a lot of effort, uh, a lot of persistence, a lot of collaboration. So it's a very, very hard thing to do. Not necessarily about spending shitloads of money, more about stamina, the leadership, the courage, the community building. So it's highly complex. and, you know, as the examples show, you know, you, you, you can do interesting things without necessarily having to spend lots of money. But coming up with the ideas and building the community is, is, is difficult and it, and it takes time. And, and, and of course, the Finnish emoticons is an interesting example, but it's just one example. You know, you, you need to do this at least, you know, once every couple of months, you come up with these kind of initiatives for, before you finally seep through into the consciousness of, foreign audiences so you know it's it's really not about that's why i call it imaginative initiative it's just an initiative but to become an imaginative community get recognized for what it does that takes a long time and repeated efforts and again i like 
um, Estonia because they're actually piling up example and initiative after initiative. They have done for the last couple of years. So it would also be interesting to see, you know, what's next and how will they continue these efforts. One of the great examples you share on sports is, is a great way to, to bring in guests in the first place, but then it's a great opportunity to change their perception about you. And you talk about the great case of the 2006 World Cup where Germany collaborated across the nation to change other people's, other nations' perceptions of them. Thank you for uh, coming up with that, uh, for asking that question, because uh, that's a very good example um, of you know, the difference between a functional and accountable approach to governance uh, and community building, uh, which is based on a copy-paste, uh, versus um, doing imaginative things. So the, this is the real problem with mega-events, like the FIFA World Cup or, or uh, an Olympic Games, where um, people apply copy-paste behavior. So they, the, the thinking of policymakers is that if, as long, you know, if we can only organize uh, a really successful World Championship soccer or a really successful Olympic Games, then people will admire us for it. And this is actually complete rubbish um, because the only thing that, you know, that what you really need to do is think about um, how can we use this effort in order to um, do stuff that creates an additional narrative. Most places do. They just become focused on making sure that the stadiums are ready, making sure that the infrastructure is ready, making sure that it becomes a great event. And what is at the end of the day really what the why they do it and why these can be triggers to reputation building is because of course the planetary telescope of the media is on these places for a couple of months. But if you don't then think about what is the story, what do we want to show besides the actual event, besides the actual game, what do we want to show the world about who we are and how are we going to do that? What initiatives are we going to take? to show that to the world whilst you know this telescope of the media is on it if you don't do that there's no point because the media will then make up their own story besides the event and besides the game will make up their own story and it might actually um be you know at the end of the day have a negative effect on your reputation and we've seen this in some cases but germany in 2006 is one of the unique examples where they have used that as, a, as an imaginative initiative. So they, they actually looked through research um, that I'm also involved in and I write about in my book, um, where we measure the name awareness and the reputation of countries. And they looked at that data and they, and they see that where uh, Germany was particularly, which, by the way, usually um, scores very high. So it's always in the top five of what is called the Nation Brands Index as one of the measurement tools. Um, so they have, they've got a very good reputation, but it's slightly weak on, on what we would call the people dimension. So the friendliness of the Germans, their lack of humor, you know, the perception of the cliche is, of course, that, you know, Germans have no humor and are not very friendly, not very welcoming. So they, they created all these initiatives surrounding hosting the World Cup in 2006 to show to the world that they're actually very friendly people, that they're welcoming and that they're hospitable and all of that. And um, so, you know, some of these things 
they did the Germans in 2006 did for the first time have now become standard practice. So, like for instance, fan zones. They would have fan zones in participating countries for people that couldn't actually travel to Germany but still wanted to celebrate together the, their, you know, their their um, participation in the event. So they created these fan zones in other countries. They were the first to invite foreign um, security services, police forces. Uh, to the game. So when Holland was playing Germany, there would be the Dutch police force around the stadium that whenever there was an issue, you know, they would, the, the Dutch fans would be approached by their own, um, police. Um, but imagine the diplomatic and legal challenges of that, right? It, it, you know, it sounds like a simple thing to do, but of course, what happens if something goes wrong and they have to arrest a person who, you know, can you arrest a person in, if you're not in your own soil and things like that. Um, so these were actually quite complicated things, but they, you know, they came up with the systems and the policies and the, and the legalities of it, um, which has now become standard practice, but the Germans were the first to do it. So because of these series of initiatives that they had around surrounding the game, they were actually able to change the needle on that and demonstrably, you know, in the research showed that, um, uh, people started to appreciate Germany as a welcoming, friendly country more than they used to before. It's a really, really great example. And the book is packed full of examples. You give frameworks, you give happiness indexes. Is there anything you'd like to say to a lot of our audience listening around Brussels and the policymaking regions? What's your message to policymakers, change makers in government, for example? With my experience of 20 years of working in this field, my main objective was to write about communities, their reputation, why they have the reputations that they do and how we can change them uh, in a way that is completely jargon-free, which actually doesn't talk about marketing and branding. You know, we've, in this podcast, talked about marketing and branding, and but in my book, only the last chapter of the book addresses that because marketing and branding are just ways of looking at this domain and and sometimes some of the tools can contribute to it, but it's a much bigger challenge. It's a challenge that should be addressed at the highest level of government. So it should be heads of states, ministers, cabinets, mayors, senior policymakers, aldermen. One thing that has really frustrated me over the years is that as soon as you say, you know, these are marketing and branding challenges, they will say, oh, this is something for the marketing people. They send it off to the tourist organization board or the, the investment promotion agency. That's not necessarily a bad thing because these people, of course, are very competent. But, you know, in my book and in this podcast, I've been able to explain that it really needs high level engagement, leadership, courage across the board, consistency, agreement between people on who we are and where we want to go and then build the collaboration. It needs to involve everybody. So it could be it could be top down or bottom up, but you need to get everybody involved. And it's really not as simple as it being a marketing challenge or a brand problem. Again, as I explained earlier, because you know the concept of branding, commercial organization is you know, slightly different from how we would look at that for places. So that's why I think it's an important book, and and this is exactly what I what I want to do with it is make sure that people that are not in the field of branding and marketing. We'll actually read it and see that these are big challenges. And, and in a globalized world where there's the risk of standardization and, and disnification and globalization, it's important because we depend on our engagement with the outside world also economically, of course, as I've explained, 
it's really important to start looking at this seriously and to look at you know how can we have a new perspective to policy making a new perspective to the things that we already do but doing them in a way that is more imaginative and therefore sets the media agenda and gets more attention internationally. and where can people contact you to find out more imaginativecommunities.com uh, they can find out about the book and uh, there's a the first chapter of the book is free to download there if you sign up for my newsletter uh, my own rgovers.com r for robert and my surname is g-o-v-e-r-s and then of course i'm on facebook linkedin there's a facebook page for imaginative community there's a linkedin company page of imaginative community and of course a twitter account Place reputation expert and author of Imaginative Communities, Admired Cities, Regions and Countries, Dr. Robert Govers. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me.